And again, thank you for being here this morning. Um, I remember there was a point in my life where I realized um, the implications of the fact that God is omniscient, or in in other words, that he knows everything, he's all-knowing. And one of the implications for me was, wow, God knows everything, not only about my life today, like what I was going to choose when I went to breakfast this morning, uh, but God also knows uh, why each of you are going to be here this morning, or that each of you is going to be here this morning. And so there's this really interesting sort of all these implications of God's omniscience. And so he knew that you were going to be in this room this morning. I would even go so far as to say that the Bible actually says that God is active in his world, and so he is actually drawing you into this place this morning. And so the implication of that is that you're not here by accident, that God has something for you to experience this morning. He's got something for you to hear. Maybe he's got a conversation for you to engage in. But again, I want to remind you that you are not here by accident, but rather you are here because God has drawn you into this place this morning. Now, um, a couple weeks ago, uh, I started a, a, a sermon on power, and uh, we ran a little bit short on time, and so I had to pause. And so today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to finish that sermon. Uh, a couple weeks ago, what, what I did was I talked about how Jesus used his power to give life. And not just to give physical life, he did that, right? He raised people from the dead, but Jesus also gave life uh, to the man who was possessed by demons, the Gerasene demoniac, right? He sent him home healed and made well, right? Jesus used his power to give life. Not only did Jesus use his power to give life, but Jesus gave, used his power to, uh, to suffer with and to comfort people, right? And so we think about power and we think about all the abuses of power. We think about all the different people in the world, whether it's Stalin you know, or Pol Pot or Hitler or Steve Jobs, different dictators of sorts in the world. Who used their power maybe in ways that, uh, that weren't always good or weren't always to serve other people. And yet we see Jesus using his power to give life and then to suffer with people and to comfort them. Today we're going to talk a little bit more about how Jesus uses his power and how we abuse ours. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, again, I thank you that all these people are here this morning. Father, again, regardless of what our motives uh, are or were for coming to this place this morning... Father, I pray that your motives would supersede ours and that they would overcome our motives. Father, I pray that it would be your motive to lead us to repentance. Father, that we would look at our own lives and understand all the the many ways in which we have failed ourselves, all the ways in which we failed one another, and most importantly, Father, the ways in which we have failed you, uh, our holy God, the creator of the universe, the author of all that is. Father, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would be upon this place. Father, I ask that, uh, that you wouldn't let anyone leave this room today without having had an encounter with you, the living God. And Father, as we encounter you, the living God, I pray that you would send us out into Rome, Georgia, wherever we're in school or where we work or into our families. And Father, I pray that we would be passionate about seeing your name glorified. I pray that we would be passionate about seeing your kingdom come, even if that means that our kingdom's And our names are diminished in the process. And so, Father, we just pray for your spirit to empower us. Father, we pray for your son, Jesus, uh, to give us that that, uh, example and that motivation to serve you and to live our lives for you. And so, Father, we pray all these things now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So a couple minutes ago, I mentioned a few uh, people who had abused power, right? And so when we think about the abuse of power, we, we have a tendency to think about politicians who've abused power. And so I mentioned, you know, Pol Pot, Hitler, Stalin, different people. The list goes on and on. 
And some of these people that have abused power have abused their power in just absolutely horrendous, horrific, horrible ways, right? And every now and then we see people who abuse their power, and maybe they do it in some ways that are a little bit less uh, detrimental or a little bit less horrible. We talked a couple weeks ago about uh, uh, the, the woman that had, I, th- I can't remember what it was, a thousand six pair of shoes, Imelda Marcos, right? Today we're going to talk about another person who has abused their powers, maybe not as seriously as uh, some of those other political leaders we talked about before, but, but nevertheless, it's an abuse of power. And the man we're going to be talking about, his name is Supermurat Niyazhov, right? I've got a couple of pictures of him up here. And uh, he actually renamed himself Turkmen Bashi, which I think means something like father of Turkmenistan or something like that, right? And uh, he ruled for a very, very long time in Turkmenistan. In fact, when they broke away from Russia, he was the first person to assume power. And, and early on, everyone loved him, right? He doesn't look very lovable right there. He looks a little more lovable in this next picture that I'm going to show you, though. Way more lovable there. Anyway. And uh, anyway, so uh, Turkmen Bashi became, you know, the, uh, the, the president of Turkmenistan. And, uh, and again, he had this huge personality. He was very gregarious. People loved him. It was this cult of personality. But, uh, but progressively, as he remained in office, he started doing things that were less and less for the sake of the people he was supposed to be serving and more and more for the sake of his own name and for the sake of his own pleasure. A couple things should have cued them, right? A couple things should have tipped them off. One of the things that he did that should have tipped them off is that one of the first things that he did is he renamed the months of the Russian calendar, okay? Now, that doesn't sound so terrible until you hear how he renamed them. He renamed each of the months of the Russian calendar either after himself or after his mother and nicknames that either of them had, right? Like that's the, you know, if, if Obama starts doing that or if, you know, George W. had started doing that, that should have been a sign that things were starting to go south. That's a little bit of abuse of power. Not only that, but uh, the very first re-election cycle, he actually deported all of the other people that were going to run against him. And he actually set up other people in their places. And so when the final tally camp came in, he had 99.5% of the vote, right? Again, if anybody gets 99% of the vote, that's a sign that something's starting to go downhill. After he won that second re-election, he immediately crowned himself president for life, right? In other words, that's what dictators do, is they, they take power and they decide to hold on to power. He did any other number of different things where he abused his power. He shut down all the internet cafes and shut down all the different internet providers. And he gave one license out to Turkmen Telecom, which of course was owned by the state. He did the same thing with TV stations and radio stations. So all of a sudden he was in control of all of the information flow that went out to the people of Turkmenistan. One of the other interesting things he did, and there is a long list of these things. Again, we think about all these people that were kind of crazy dictators living back in the 15th and 16th centuries, right? But this guy just died back in 2006. One of the other things he did is the leading Muslim imam that was there in the capital city of Turkmenistan, uh, he, he commanded this imam to preach not from the Quran, but rather from a book that he had written called Rumana, or the name of the soul, right? Does that make sense? That would be like, a, you know, somebody becoming the president of the United States and uh, going to Andy Stanley at North Point saying, hey, Andy, you can't preach from the Bible anymore, but don't worry, I've got this great book that I wrote. It's filled with great stuff. You're going to have to preach on it from now on. When the imam refused, uh, Turk Minbashi threw him in jail. There's, I'm going to read a couple more things that he did that were pretty remarkable. He fired about 15,000 healthcare workers, 
And uh, part of the reason he fired them is because he changed uh, the, the code of medical ethics so that instead of doctors taking the Hippocratic oath, they had to swear an oath to Turkmen Bashi, right? One of the things that he suggested is he got rid of all the dentists. And again, we don't know exactly why he got rid of the dentists. But in lieu of dentistry, he suggested that the people, this is a quote, chew on bones to strengthen their teeth. Does that make sense? Like chew on bones to strengthen their teeth. I mean, the list of things goes on and on and on. But it was just one after another uh, of decisions that he made that abused the power that he had been entrusted to take care of the people. After he died in 2006, $3 billion was found in an offshore account with his name on it. All the while, the people of Turkmenistan existed on about $50 a month. Does that make sense? Just this abuse of power. And again, it's a little bit of a silly example. That's why I put that little silly picture of him up there. But the truth is, we, we know down deep in our souls, and we've witnessed in society time and time again, people who have been given power, either they've taken it for themselves or they've been given power or something has happened for them to rise to power. And then we've witnessed them abuse that power over and over and over again, right? And here's the point. Here's why this matters is that each of us has been endowed by power from God. Each of us has given, been given power from God to use as we will, right? That's just true. That's exactly what happened. And if we're honest, we must admit that at times, and maybe more often, we've abused that power that God has entrusted us with. Maybe we haven't had the power to fire 15,000 healthcare workers, but maybe we've squandered the power that God has given us, right? You know, maybe we've used that power to hurt someone that we thought deserved it. Maybe we haven't used that power that God has entrusted us with when it was in our power to actually do so. Again, the point is many of us have abused the power that God has entrusted us with. And as I mentioned two weeks ago, for some of us, power isn't just an issue. It's the issue. Does that make sense? In other words, in your heads and in your hearts, there are some of you who would say, if I don't have power and influence over other people, whether it's my husband or my wife or my family or the people at work, if I don't have power, then my life is not worth living. It's not worth anything. I'm only worth something if I have power and if I have influence over other people. That's, that's your issue, right? So it's, it's an issue for some of us, but it's definitely the issue for some of you out there. And so the question that I want to ask today is, what did Jesus do with his power? You know, Jesus was arguably or unarguably, actually, uh, the most powerful human being that ever existed. We saw that witnessed in the miracles that he did. We saw that in the way that he lived his life. He had all the power in the universe. And how did Jesus use that power? That's the question. The first thing we're going to look at this morning is we're going to take a look at John chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. It'll be up on the screen. And we're going to see that Jesus uses his power to serve us. Jesus uses his power to serve. Now listen to this passage of scripture. It was just before the Passover festival. Now, this is the fourth Passover festival that John writes about in his book. And the reason he does that is is it actually, uh, each of those different Passover serves as a start, and in this case, an end to Jesus' ministry. And so this is the end of Jesus' ministry. It's just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father, right? All through scripture, we read about Jesus saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And so he he doesn't do things because his hour has not yet come. And here in this passage, John, the the old pastor, brings our attention to the fact that now finally Jesus' hour is here. 
it was time for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them all the way to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he, now let me pause there for a second, don't look at the screen, all right? So what we're just told is that Judas had already been tempted by Satan. He'd already made his mind up that he was going to turn Jesus in and betray him. And then John goes to tell us basically that at the same moment, Jesus has become fully aware and is fully cognizant of the power that God has entrusted to him. It's the culmination of his ministry. And so he does what with that power? You know, you would look at it and there's this contrast in those two sentences. Judas was getting ready to betray him. Jesus gets ready to demonstrate his power. And so he, what, blasts Judas, right? He publicly humiliates him. He points his finger at him and turns him into a a pile of ash. Does it say that's what Jesus does? No, listen to what Jesus does with the power that he has. It says this, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. Okay, just think about this for a moment. Okay, just think about it for a second. Jesus' hour has arrived, right? There are all these other passages of Scripture. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And John tells us Jesus' hour has now come. The, the consummation of all of his ministry, right? This, sort of the ultimate goal of 33 years of his life of perfectly obedience to the law of God. 33 years of his, of his life, right? This is the culmination of it all. The hour has finally arrived where Jesus is going to suffer and die on the cross and rise again, thereby conquering death and canceling out all of our sins. And how does Jesus begin his final hour? He begins it by serving us, by washing the disciples' feet, by taking on the role of a servant, right? I mean, would Steve Jobs have done that? Would Napoleon have done that? Right? Would Hitler have done that? Would Hitler have said, all right, this is the culmination of all of my power and all of my authority and everything. I'm going to now serve each of you that have sort of surrounded yourself with me and served me. Of course not. But Jesus serves his disciples by taking on the role of a servant. In fact, what's interesting is that in the, the verbs in this passage that we just read, we read them and, and because of you know, translation issues, you got to kind of smooth things out a little bit. Most of them are translated in the past tense. You know, Jesus stood up, Jesus did this, Jesus did that. But actually in the Greek, all of them are in the present tense, right? And so John is writing it and he's writing it in such a way that he's writing to these people because in their culture, what we just read would have been utterly and completely shocking, right? In, in, in Judaism, a Jew wasn't actually allowed to wash another Jew's feet, even if that Jew was a slave, even if that Jew was a servant, it, the, the foot washing could only take place by some other sort, sort of Gentile or more menial servant. It was, this was like the most dishonorable thing you could possibly do. And so when John tells this story, he tells it in present tense in the Greek. And so let me, let me just try it this way. This is the exact literal translation. So John's you know, telling this story. And he says, in the middle of dinner, right? In the middle of this Passover meal, Jesus stands up. Right? People would have been like, what? Because everyone would have been reclining around the table. And John says, Jesus stands up. He lays down his garments, right? Present tense. In other words, Jesus takes off his outer robe, right? 
and really kind of kind of goes down to his undergarment, right? And he lays aside or lays down these garments. Then in present tense, he girds himself with a cloth. So, so John's painting this present tense picture. He puts a cloth into his, you know, into his waistband. He casts water into a wash basin, present tense. He begins washing the feet of the disciples. He wipes them off with the very cloth that he's wearing. See, John is painting this picture, and he's, he's painting in present tense to say, you guys couldn't believe it. It's absolutely shocking. Everyone would have been amazed. Everyone would have been changed when they saw Jesus, the author of reality, the God of the universe, kneeling down to wash and to serve the disciples' feet, right? When we see leaders behaving that way, we step back and we take notice and we are moved. We're ultimately changed. Jesus, at the very moment of the culmination of his power, takes on the role of a servant to serve these men, and they are shocked. In fact, there was a a painting that I think I've got up here in a little while. Maybe I skipped it, but this is a painting actually by a a Dutch painter named Van Van Baburen in 1616. You can't really see it, unfortunately. It's not good, but I looked through all the paintings, and it's, it's not good because it shows Jesus with his robe on. But it is good in the sense that all of the disciples that are surrounded are all sort of arguing one another. They're all in shock. They get it. It's shocking, right? But whenever we see a leader use his power to serve others, we are undone. Some of you have read the story of the endurance. This is the story of Ernest Shackleton. And uh, Ernest Shackleton took a group of men in this boat called the Endurance back in, I believe it was 1914. He was basically trying to be the very first person to make it to the South Pole and of course, on their way in 1914, they got basically into the water surrounding the South Pole. And uh, the boat, the Endurance, got trapped in the ice. The boat was crushed and it sank, right? And so here is Ernest Shackleton with all of his crew out there on the middle of these, uh, this ice shelf. And essentially, they've got to get rescued. And so in order to be rescued, they've got to make their way to the nearest populated island, which is some you know, astronomical distance away. And so Ernest Shackleton begins leading his men, he's the captain, leading them to safety, right? And what's interesting is if you read the story of the endurance, which I recommend to every single one of you, it's utterly fantastic. What happens is you you sort of gain this picture of Shackleton as this amazing man who uses his power uh, to serve the men that are underneath him. There's this one great story of when the uh, the photographer drops his mittens, he's jumping, jumping from one ice flow to another, and he drops his mittens, and they sink into the freezing cold water, And Shackleton, the captain, immediately takes his mittens from around his neck and he gives them to the photographer. And as a result, gets frostbite and loses parts of his fingers. It's this amazing service. One of his uh, men that was part of the crew was interviewed afterwards and they said, what made Shackleton such an amazing leader? And the man said, the thing that made Ernest Shackleton such an amazing leader is he saw himself as a father to all the men. Does that make sense? Like instead of using his power to sort of bring comfort to himself in order for using, instead of using his power for personal fulfillment or his own safety, he saw himself as a dad to all these men and he did everything in his power to serve them. Here's two more quotes. Shackleton's first thought was for the men under him. He didn't care if he went without a shirt on his back so long as the men he was leading had sufficient clothing. This is from uh, the first officer there on the endurance. Listen to the second quote. How he stood the incessant vigil was marvelous, but he is a wonderful man. He simply never spares himself if, by his individual toil, he can possibly benefit anyone else. In other words, these men, 
They witnessed a leader who used his power in order to serve them, in order to take care of them. You know, one of the saddest parts of the story of Shackleton, though, is that he died as an alcoholic, right? Great man, like just an amazing leader. He used his power for all of these people. But at the same time, he was very broken in many other ways. And the good news is that in Jesus, we have a hero who uses his power to serve us, and yet he's a perfect hero who is unbroken and who is untarnished by sin. And because Jesus used his power to serve us, we must use our power to serve one another. Let me say that one more time. Because Jesus used his power to serve us, we must use our power to serve one another. This is ultimately the point of John chapter 13. Look at verses 14 and 15. They'll be on the screen in a minute. Then Jesus, you know, after sort of registering the shock in the room from all of his disciples, he says this, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. In other words, Jesus says, I'm setting an example for you. You're all going to be very powerful, right? You're going to have books in the Bible. 2,000 years later, people are going to be talking about you. You're going to have lots of power, lots of authority. I want to encourage you to use that power the same way that I have used my power with you to serve you, to care for you. So what does that look like for us as people in this room this morning to use the power that God has entrusted for us, to us? I think the first thing we need to think about is there are people who are close to us, and we, need, we have the opportunity to use our power to serve them, right? So, so let's say you're a mother, right? Every school lunch you prepare in the morning, you're using your power to serve your children. Every bed that you make, right? Every dinner that you prepare, right? Every, every child that you bathe, you're using your power to serve those people who are under your charge. It's true for fathers in different ways. If you're a student here this morning... You, you may have people that are very tightly in your circle, very close to you. It's in your power to serve those people. I think another implication of this would be to say, look around the room at the people of Seven Hills Fellowship. What Jesus was doing was he was telling the disciples, he was saying, look, you're in community with one another. I want you to use your power to serve one another. And we know in other parts of the Bible that the Bible is very clear that as believers in a church body, we're to use that power to serve one another, right? Yesterday, David and Ali Slade... And Sam Pierce and several other people from this church went to help Carol Baker move, right? They, they used their power to lift couches and chairs and a, a washer and a dryer and load it into a truck. They used their power to serve someone that needed help from our community. And then the second thing or the last thing that we see that we need to do with this power is we need to serve those people where we work, where we live, where we play. Because Jesus used his power to serve us, we must use our power to serve one another. Now, the next thing we see uh, that we're going to talk about this morning is that not only did Jesus use his power to serve us, but Jesus used his power to forgive us. Let's look at Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, again, is this wonderful story. Jesus has begun his public ministry. He's been healing people of sicknesses. He's been casting out demons. He's been doing all sorts of amazing things. And as a result, he's become incredibly popular. People want to be close to him. They they want to sort of, uh, you know, just sort of have an experience with this uh, this Messiah or with this prophet, whoever they believe him to be. And Mark 2 records the story of the man who is a paralytic and his friends lowering him before Jesus. And so here's the story. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. 
Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowering the mat the man was on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Does that make sense? Again, Jesus, God in the flesh, the all-powerful one, uses his power not only to serve, but Jesus uses his power to, first of all, to forgive this man. Jesus uses that very same power to offer forgiveness to you, and he uses that same power to offer forgiveness to me, right? That's the whole reason that we're here this morning. It's the whole reason that we can stand before our heavenly Father unashamed because our shame has been removed, right? Not guilty because our guilt has been removed. God's no longer angry with us because he took out his anger and he placed it upon Jesus, his son. He poured out his judgment on his son, Jesus, so that we could stand before Jesus. Jesus used his power to offer us forgiveness. Some of you are familiar, uh, of course, with uh, Billy Graham and the amazing ministry he's had over the years. You're familiar probably with different you know, numbers of his children. One of his children is named Anne Graham, and her married name is now Lots. She's the daughter of Billy and Ruth Graham. And uh, in one of her speaking engagements, she tells a story, and she says, when I was just a teenager, I had just started driving. I had my driver's license. And she said, you know, I was just cocky. Yeah, I was arrogant, and I thought I could handle it. And so I drove you know, the car that my parents had, had purchased for me, and I was driving fast, and I was driving recklessly. And one day I was headed home. They lived in Black Mountain, North Carolina, and I was headed up the mountain. And uh, she said, I was driving so fast that I lost control, and I slammed into our neighbor's car, Mrs. Pickering. And Mrs. Pickering saw me slam into her car, and she said, I quickly backed up, and I drove away because I was so scared of facing Mrs. Pickering And I was even more afraid of facing my father. And so she said she parked her car sort of far away from the house. And and for the rest of the afternoon, she tried to avoid coming into contact either with Mrs. Pickering or with her dad. And she said eventually it was kind of becoming toward evening. It was getting dark and she had to go inside at some point in time to eat dinner. And she tried to sneak in the house. And as she snuck into the house, she tried to sneak her way through through the, the kitchen. And she said she looked up and in the kitchen there was her father who she had been trying to avoid. And I'm going to quote the rest of this. From her talk, she says this, I paused for what seemed a very long moment frozen in time. And then I ran to my father and I threw my arms around his neck. I told him about my wreck, how I'd driven too fast and smashed into the neighbor's car. I told him it wasn't her fault. It was all mine. And as I wept on his shoulder, he said four things to me. This is her dad, Billy Graham, said these four things. And I knew all along about your wreck. Mrs. Pickering came straight up the mountain and told me, And I was just waiting for you to come and tell me yourself, right? Sounds a whole lot like confession. The second thing I want to tell you is I love you, right? We need to hear that sometimes. We need to hear that not only our earthly fathers love us, but we need to hear that our heavenly father loves us. The third thing he said is we can fix the car. And the fourth thing is he says, you're going to be a better driver because of this. She goes on to say, sooner or later, all of us are involved in some kind of wreck. It may be your own fault or maybe someone else's. When the damage is your fault, there's a good chance you'll be confronted by the flashing blue lights of the morality police. But my father gave me a deeper understanding of what it means to experience the loving, forgiving embrace of my heavenly father. Does that make sense? You know, here's Billy Graham, this man who, who, who made his life, who built his life around telling people about the forgiveness that is offered to us in Jesus. And this powerful man, because he's a father, 
because he's a huge public figure, has a choice to make with his own daughter, and he uses his power to offer her forgiveness, right? There's a great quote by Oscar Schindler. You're familiar with the movie Schindler's List. And Oscar Schindler gives this quote to us. He says, power is when you have every justification to kill someone or to punish them or hold them responsible, and then you don't. That's forgiveness, right? And so again, the point this morning is because, of, because Jesus used his power to forgive us, we must use our power to forgive others. Those closest to you, right? You got to forgive them. They're the hardest people to forgive. The people here at Seven Hills Fellowship are going to be hard sometimes for you to forgive, but because Jesus used his power to forgive us, we must use our power to forgive others at work, in the community, wherever we find ourselves. Now, what's wonderful is that each of the Gospels wraps up Jesus' use of power for us. And Mark does a superb job in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45, of talking about Jesus' service and his forgiveness. Listen to these verses. He says this, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, right? Their authority, their power, their influence. They lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever must be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the son of man, that is the Messiah, that's the term from Daniel, the the God man, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, to forgive us, to forgive those who would trust in him. Now, This is such a a hard concept for us to grasp intellectually because we're justice people, right? We really believe in functional karma. We believe that we should get what we give in return, but that's not Christianity. Christianity is exactly the opposite of that. It's that you never get what you deserve if you trust in Jesus alone as your Savior. And it's such a hard truth for us to grasp that Jesus gave us a picture of the gospel. And the picture of the gospel that he gave us is found in bread and wine. This morning is this meal that we celebrate to commemorate the forgiveness that we have in Jesus, that Jesus was the eternal Passover lamb, that, that, that God poured out his justice on Jesus instead of on us, and that we're declared righteous and innocent. And so Jesus gave us this meal as a reminder of the forgiveness that is offered to us in God, and the reminder that Jesus had the power to offer us that forgiveness. And so there are tables that are set up on my right. There's a table with bread and wine. On my left, there's a table with bread and grape juice. And then in the upper area, we have another table with bread and wine. And you're going to take that bread today, and you're going to dip it either into the wine or into the grape juice. If you're a believer, that is. If you trust in Jesus alone for your your salvation, then Jesus invites you to viscerally be reminded that he has the power And that he used that power to offer forgiveness for all those who would trust in him. Does that make sense? The only person that's not invited to take this bread and wine today, the only people that aren't invited to do this are people who haven't yet trusted in Jesus alone for their salvation. And so it's just this great physical, visceral reminder of the gospel that you are declared righteous if you trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. What I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to actually read the words of institution. I'm then going to pray, and I'm going to invite you to, to take a moment and to, to meditate 
to think about the fact that Jesus used his power to serve you, to think about the fact that Jesus used his power to serve you precisely by giving his life as a ransom for you, for paying the price that you should have paid. And when you've thought about that and pondered it and meditated it, I want you to get up and I want you to receive that bread and that wine, that wine or that grape juice as a declaration from God that he has forgiven you, that there's nothing that stands between you and he any longer because of the righteousness of his son, Jesus. So let's take a moment. I'll read the words of institution and then we'll pray. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death to yourself, to one another. You proclaim the Lord's death to his Father in heaven above until he comes. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I pray that uh, you would give us your spirit now to not only remind us intellectually, but to remind us viscerally that your son Jesus paid it all, that the entire price has been paid, that the ransom has been given in his death for us. And so, Father, I pray that we would receive this bread and wine today in the power that Jesus has to to declare that we are not guilty, in the power that Jesus has to declare that we are innocent, that we are forgiven. And so, Father, I ask that we would pray these things today and that we would receive them in Jesus' name alone. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.